to begin a Dharma talk by acknowledging the teachers that have, be- that have come before us. Because without them, we all wouldn't be here. But this evening I wanted to honor my two co-teachers here. I feel tremendous appreciation for the ongoing support and friendship, for the Dharma challenges. and blessings of working with Eric over all these years. Thank you, Eric. It's just been wonderful. Thank you. And also a tremendous appreciation for Carol for stepping in to a partnership that has already existed (laughs) for so many years and being so graceful about it for our growing friendship. Thank you. We are unusual. (laughs) (laughs) Really? There's not that many gay and lesbian teachers. <laughs> if one of us was would be if one of us was sick, there wouldn't be a replacement as there are for other teachers. And we feel this keenly, Eric and I, as we struggle to balance our teaching load and know that at this moment there are not very many people we could call on if one of us decided to drop out for some reason. And so there is a special appreciation for the uniqueness of this. Eric last night talked or started his talk with an example of homophobia. It is probably true to say for all of us that there is a part of us that knows that homophobia isn't true. There is a part of us because we are living as gay men and women, bisexuals and transgendered members of this community, that we know that we are an expression of love, that we are part of the many blessings and gifts that life brings in all her and his varied, diverse forms. There may also be some parts of us that believe that those messages are true, 
the reason we are here is to find out for ourselves not because as Eric said what teachers say not because of what homophobes say we are here to find out for ourselves what's true there is nothing more liberating there is nothing more liberating than that capacity to see for ourselves directly what is true and this capacity to see what is true is not a cold scientific objective capacity not at all it is a quality that is held deeply in the heart of love and compassion and that's why the Buddha could not talk about the Dharma and could not talk about wisdom without also talking about love and compassion because they come together to see what is true is also to love and to love is to see what is true it actually is impossible to come to love without seeing what is true we are born as human beings with the inherent capacity to be deluded we are born with the capacity to be blind we are born with the capacity to be greedy to be hating to be full of sloth and torpor restless and doubting we experience all these things it's probably true to say on a daily level just this evening I was sitting down with my dinner and realized that I had not gotten the gravy <laughs> 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 and there I was deciding to join you all and eat mindfully instead of conversing and I watched this impulse grab me I wanted the gravy, gravy. <laughs> I knew it would be good gravy it looked like good gravy and it was very seductive and it was only from many past experiences of getting up to get the gravy that I knew that in the process of getting up to get what I wanted that was taking me away from my mindfulness that I would lose the mindfulness and that it would take all this work to reconnect again and so I resisted the first impulse and the second <laughs> and the third 
desire. Here's a, a very special uh, friend who puts it this way. Close eyes, I take a deep breath, I'm beginning my meditation. Rising, falling, rising, falling. Oh, I'm getting hungry, contractions, rumbling. What do I have to eat for breakfast? Ooh, I know, I think I'll have one of those great vegan oatmeal chocolate chip muffins from Bread and Circuits. You know, that's like your um, Whole Foods, mm. from Whole Foods. Those are so scrumptious. The, you know, the ones from Gwen and Deb are really good too, though. But <laughs> I shouldn't be eating them because they aren't vegan, and I'm really trying to keep that commitment. I wish they would get some good vegan muttons. <laughs> but maybe it's not too horrible to have one once in a while. Nobody's perfect. I really like them raspberry mocha ones. <laughs> oh, that's right, I'm wanting, I'm thinking. Rising, falling, rising. Oh no, here comes the leg pain. Oh God, I hate that. Tension, burning, tightness. Oh right, rising, falling. Oh no, it's getting worse. Why do I have to sit through this pain? What good is it to torture myself? Oh God, I'm such a wimp. Why can't I just watch the sensations? It's just a little pain. Oh, I'll never be any good at this. I can't meditate. I can't sit through this pain. This is nothing. What about all those monks and nuns being tortured by the Chinese in Tibet? <laughs> what if I get cancer or something horrible? How will I be able to practice then? I can't even sit through a little pain in my legs. Oh my God, this is getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> so we live with we live with the reality of these forces and also our capacity to transform them this path is about being able to distinguish what is true from what isn't. What is true? What are the characteristics of what is true? In your own experience, do you know what is it that tells you this is true? In this tradition, there are not grand and huge philosoph philosophical treatises or phenomenal scriptures describing in tremendous detail what is true. It actually can come down to one sentence. Do you know? That which liberates us from suffering is true. And what is deluded? That which creates suffering. What is true? That which benefits us and benefits all in supporting our happiness. What is harmful, unskillful, unwholesome. That which hurts. That which takes us away from the conditions 
that bring freedom and happiness. Now, there are two kinds of happiness that we're talking about, right? There are the kinds of happiness that come from sensory pleasures. Nice. <laughs> let's be honest. It's nice to experience the happiness that comes from sensory pleasures. We all have felt deeply touched with the happiness that comes from experiencing and opening to the beauty that is surrounding us in nature. We have all felt tremendous happiness and deeply touched from touch and what that can bring, from the beauty of art, music. We have all felt the incredible happiness that comes from a concentrated mind, from a stable mind, from a deep connection with the breath. We've all felt the happiness of possibly doing something that we experience through our bodies, whether it's a shower or running a marathon or whether it's dancing. There is this type of happiness. But this is not the only happiness that is possible. There is another happiness, and this other happiness comes about not from particular conditions. The sensory happiness that we have and can experience has one problem. What's that? Yes. We can't count on it. We can't. I mean, if we could, none of us would be here. <laughs> we wouldn't, would we? Honestly, we would not be here. The Buddha wouldn't have bothered to leave his palace because he had it. He had the karmic conditions for happiness. He had a stable mind already because he had been working all those thousands of years. So it wasn't like he was in too much suffering. He had the stable mind. He was generous and bright. And you know they have all these wonderful descriptions of his mind. He was living in this exquisite palace. There were all these trees and birds and lakes. And they had wonderful people in waiting for him. And his friends were warriors. I mean, if you could name it, he had it even better than Bill Gates. <laughs> and he, what he saw was that even though he was incredibly happy, he saw that it wasn't going to last because our bodies have the capacity and do experience pain because they do get old, because we do die, because Conditions are changing. Conditions are changing. We've all experienced that in our breath already, that sometimes our breath is one way and then sometimes another. We've all experienced it in how we've related to our walking meditation, to the experience of eating. It's changing all the time. It's good news and bad news. 
bad news because this isn't the path. Good news because in truly recognizing this as the truth, as an experience that cannot lead to a lasting happiness, we have the choice to direct ourselves to the possibility of building a lasting happiness. This is our possibility. This is our possibility. We can build a lasting happiness. And this lasting happiness is not based on conditions. That's why we started this retreat by saying, the point is not your experience, because your experience is conditional and changing. The point is how you build your relationship to the experience. And it is in the relationship to our ongoing experiences that we build this capacity for lasting happiness. Mindfulness and awareness is the key. Because awareness helps us to see five particular characteristics in particular, which screen and take us away from the conditions of lasting happiness. These forces obscure and seduce us away from this possibility. You all know them by heart already because <laughs> you're living them. <laughs> Desire, greed, wanting, ill will, aversion, fear, hating, anger, irritation, grumpiness, <laughs> sloth, torpor, heaviness, a lack of energy, drowsiness, restlessness, anxiety, worry, and doubt. These are called the five hindrances or the five forces that seduce our minds into thinking that conditional happiness is the way to go. They all have the characteristic, this particular characteristic of seduction. It's like, a, it's like a mirage. They kind of draw us in and they say, if you just come with me, if you just come with me, I promise you I'll make you feel good. And we believe them. And we might even temporarily feel good. And Addiction is just a classic example of this process, you know, of thinking, if I just have one more hit, I did it with cigarettes, you know, I would say to myself in my struggle to let go, I'll just have one more. But each cigarette I had built my addiction to cigarettes. And this is how these particular energies work. The more we buy into them, the more they actually seduce us away from our ability to be free.
So let's, let's go into them in detail so that we can start to recognize them. Desire has the characteristic of stickiness. It makes our mind stick to the object so that it feels like we have to have whatever we desire. Desire has the characteristic of making the object more attractive than it really is. Fascinating, isn't it? When I read that, I was like, wow, that's true, but I never realized it. I mean, when we back off and we think about our love relationships, then we really think, oh yeah, yeah. When I first met her or him, I thought there was no, I thought they were perfect. When I first met my partner, I thought, my God, this woman, they, I can't find anything wrong with her. That's how much I desired her. <laughs> I really did want her, and I thought she was wonderful and lovely. And that doesn't mean to say she isn't now, but it's really different. Because <laughs> you really get to see, after a while, the reality of whatever we desire, which is that everything contains things that aren't perfect or desirable, as well as desirable qualities. But when you desire, you can, you can only see what's attractive about whatever you desire. Desire is insatiable, and so the more we feed our desire, the more desire grows. And the more desire grows, the more we plan and spend time around meeting our desires. So I don't know if, you know, if you've noticed, but certainly when I've been on meditation retreats, I've spent hours thinking how I'm going to do lunch, then when I'm going to do my shower, and if I do this fast walking or slow walking, or all in a all in a desire to try in some way to create pleasant experiences for myself. <laughs> it's great. It's great to see our minds. It's so liberating to see our minds, and it is nothing to be ashamed of. It isn't, because it's just the nature of our untrained minds. This is one of the forces that comes up. <coughs> one of the beautiful practices working with desire is to try and separate the object we're desiring from the actual experience of desire, and to bring mindfulness to the experience of desire. How does desire feel in my body? And immediately, our relationship to desire changes. What is that experience? What's the direct experience of wanting? And can I hold it with mindfulness and with kindness? One of the uh, traditional antidotes to desire, and you might have heard this already, some of you, in the Buddhist text, is to contemplate the unattractive qualities of the object. So I don't know if any of you have read some of the Buddha's suggestions 
and um, that he gave to the monks when they were working with desire for the, uh, members of the opposite sex, um, although who knows in those times mm -hmm. too. But anyway, so the Buddha says, you know, if you're desiring these nuns or, or some of the women in the lay sangha, think about all the blood and pus in their bodies. <laughs> think, <laughs> think about the mucus, the snot, Think about the urine and the feces. <laughs> Think about those, the bloody nature of muscles. Think about the grisly nature of grizzle. <laughs> he went into 32 of these characteristics. <laughs> and he said, check it out, because it really helps you to dissociate yourself from your desire for this being. I have um, an ongoing desire for chocolate, <laughs> which some of you know about. And so sometimes I say to myself, you know, if you eat this chocolate, this is what's going to happen. And I think about the unpleasant qualities of it, you know, sometimes that, it ha that I OD on it and it just isn't that pleasant. And I think about that. <laughs> Thinking about the unattractive qualities associated with what you're desiring. Another is to think about impermanence, that whatever you want and whatever pleasantness you're going to experience from whatever you want, life will guarantee that it'll change. And so is it worth it? Another traditional antidote is concentration. It is said, if you really intentionally and wholeheartedly align your mind to a safe object that you don't desire, the desire falls away because there's no space anymore. There's just the awareness and the focus on the experience of whatever you've chosen to experience. So bringing your mind back with a wholehearted concentration to your breath, for example, and doing it over and over again will counteract desire. Can you see how desire grabs our minds away from that sense of awareness and openness to the experience without clinging? And can you see how it pulls us and catches us and takes us away from the kind of spaciousness and open-heartedness that is at the base of freedom? Can you see that? Does that make sense? How much desire is an energy that keeps pulling us away and involving us in a conditional relationship that's always going to change so that we keep moving over and over again into more and more experiences trying to meet desire and away from that open-hearted presence and love that is that 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 has the capacity to hold all experiences in peace. And that's why the Buddha said, 
mindfulness brings the highest peace. When Eric talked about nirvana last night, he used the word highest peace. Because highest peace is the spaciousness that is unaffected by any experience and any changing condition and mindfulness can bring us there. And that's why we're practicing mindfulness. And so can you see how desire takes you away from that into an involvement and a, and, um, a, a, a gripped relationship that, that has no openness in it? It's like, how do you communicate it? I'm trying. <laughs> Ill will. Ill will comes up when there are unpleasant conditions and we don't like them and we push them away. It's just the natural response of the untrained mind. We don't like it, we push it away. It's unpleasant, we strike against it. It's a contracted state ill will, just like desire. It's actually the opposite of desire. And instead of grasping for something, we push it away. So the Buddha suggests that we take a different object when we are in a relationship of ill will. He also invites us to cultivate an experience, an interest in the experience of ill will. What actually is it that I do not like? What is the experience of not liking, of being angry, of being depressed, of being scared? All of these are versions of ill will. What's the actual experience of it? Can I see it and can I be interested in it? Because interest is a direct antidote to ill will. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Another traditional antidote, and we've been practicing it, is loving kindness. The Buddha said that hatred will never cease through hatred. Hatred can only cease through love. Ill will, anger, aversion, irritation, grumpiness will never cease through ill will, anger, aversion, and irritation. It will only cease through love and kindness. It, it sounds, this sounds kind of very ordinary, doesn't it? But how many times have you thought if you were just more angry and if you just really expressed it that you would feel better and that the anger would get better? I used to think that. And I used to be really angry. And it took me a long while, because I was into that thing of beating cushions and being angry and expressing your feelings, you know. It took me a long while to realize I was just getting angrier and angrier. <laughs> it was very unpleasant. <laughs> and full of suffering, actually. Anger can only cease through kindness. This is a radical invitation. 
This is radical because have you noticed how many times when you're angry, you think you're angry because someone said or did something? You think you're angry because of some situation? And you actually might feel a victim to the anger? Isn't, isn't that something that comes hand in hand with anger? Any situation where we feel anger, we often also feel a victim. In feeling a victim, we also blame. Blaming builds anger. Blaming builds anger. Blaming sets concrete around that space of feeling a victim. We're imprisoning ourselves. And even when I know I'm doing this, I watch myself still want to blame someone or something when I'm feeling angry. It is so seductive. It is so seductive. The path of freedom and liberation asks us over and over again to drop down from the storyline and to actually come into connection with our experience as it's happening, to find out how it is for us in this moment of anger. What is the actual experience? Are there any associated feelings underneath the anger that we're not feeling? The moment we're able to bring our capacity to be kind and to be aware and to hold the experience, we are immediately creating a path of empowerment. Because by coming into connection with ourselves and by coming into connection with what's difficult, we are building a relationship that is profoundly healing. And in that connection, we begin to see what is skillful and what needs to be done. And therefore, we become empowered. The only way to empowerment is to come back over and over again in a direct connection to those states of aversion to the feelings that might be underneath them, and to experience them, to hold them with kindness, and not to get into the storyline. This is a beautiful roomy poem, The Guest House. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably 
they may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guest from beyond. You know, even though I've experienced some tremendously difficult situations in my life and some tremendously painful relationships, I understand that probably I wouldn't have come to a spiritual practice without them, that it took that kind of suffering for me to want to find a way to do it differently. Each time we experience the challenge, the house guest, or the shame, or a sorrow, of an anger, of desire, it actually can become the invitation to stimulate and to strengthen and to inspire us to a deeper spiritual practice. In this way, they become divine messengers. Without developing the strength to hold them, we wouldn't have strength without trying to stretch our hearts around something that feels impossible to open to, our hearts wouldn't be very wide. Without the deep sorrows and tears, we wouldn't understand and empathize with those who grieve as well. Each of the challenges that we face are challenges that are also gifts that empower and strengthen us on this path of opening our hearts and minds. It takes tremendous patience because it isn't easy. It's really difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we want to be kind. Sometimes we want to be outside of the grips of desire, and it seems impossible. But the spiritual practice doesn't demand immediacy. It doesn't insist that we be a certain way. It just asks us to see if it's possible to hold these experiences without building them. And that is possible. The difference between insight on this path and not is beginning to see that by not believing these energies, by not building them and feeding them, we are building our freedom. That's the path. It doesn't insist we don't have them. 
It doesn't even insist that we be kind to them. But it says it's possible not to build them and feed them. With every intention we have to hold these experiences with kindness, with patience, or just not to build them, we build a force that becomes stronger and stronger with each intention until it actually carries us. It's incredible. I know that some of you have been here on this retreat, not this particular retreat, but one of the GLBT retreats, when Eric has talked about being in tremendous pain. And I know some of you have when I have as well. And you've also seen that force that's carried us. That even when we've been working with the deepest struggles, we have been carried and sometimes it feels like a marvel to me these last few days working with such intense dissociation and at the same time feeling in some way, not that it isn't incredibly difficult and uncomfortable, but knowing that I am being carried. And it isn't because I'm doing anything, but because the force of all those moments of intention and mindfulness and kindness and just not building carry one more and more and more. And then in some way our greatest suffering becomes graceful. I just wanted to mention, um, I'm not going to go into them, but just to round it off, I wanted to mention sloth and torpor and restlessness, just to name them as energies that can seduce us away from being mindful and doubt. Derek White says, enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. May each of us here open to all of our life. May we be able to see clearly that which brings us suffering and that which brings us freedom. In this way, may we come to rest in the beauty of our hearts, of loving kindness and wisdom.
may we practice diligently until we come to this freedom. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.